Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you. And uh, we are here at Artisanal Burger Company in Manchester, Connecticut. And we've got a live studio audience. Live studio audience, say the obligatory yay! Yay! All right, all right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Anyway, uh, we're uh, we're excited to have, uh, you know, actual, like, you know, stuff going on in in front of each other. It's uh, a lot. It's a lot uh, better than the virtual stuff. Anyway, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I'm serving a church right now in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm glad to do that. And I'm a writer, and I've done some other stuff. But enough about me. Why don't we talk about you, Glenn? <laughs> I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, professor emeritus of history at Central Connecticut State University. And I run a ministry called Every Spring Ministries. Good stuff, good stuff. And Glenn is going to be getting some food, but he promised not to smack his lips right into the mic. <laughs> well, I, I'm tempted to say I shouldn't make promises I can't keep, but I'll do my best. <laughs> Right, right. Now, Tom, Tom, you've already eaten. I have, but I, I still do not make promises not to make strange sounds here. <laughs> I have a, have a knack for it, but uh, Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist. Um, I teach at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and other places. All right, great. Well, today is my day. Uh, I'm, I've been uh, thinking a little bit about what to talk about, and... I've been reflecting upon uh, the statement that we hear sometimes, uh, well, not sometimes, a lot from folks on the left, and that statement is the personal is political. Personal is political. So I know that we're familiar with that, that, uh, uh, that statement, and, uh, and there are a lot of folks today for whom it almost seems as though it's, I guess, common sense that the personal should be political. And that at one time, the personal was not considered political. It was considered pre-political. It kind of strikes them as odd. So I'd like to step back and think a little bit about the way people used to think about politics and where politics began and where it ended and why uh, everything uh, couldn't be sort of lumped under the category of political. So politics, let's think a little bit about politics. What is politics? Well, when we think about politics, we think about the polis, the city. Uh, that's what the Greek uh, word polis means, this refers to. And we've talked about this before. You know, we've got different words that we use that are derived from polis, like polite. You know, a person is polite if he's urbane. There's an interesting way of kind of tying it together. <laughs> Uh, and is, a, is sort of uh, capable of, of, of living uh, fruitfully alongside other people in a community. So, uh, you know, a, a person who's polite uh, is uh, pleasant to be around and work with. Yeah, it's worth noting that when you go back to ancient Greece, um, the Greeks really identified very strongly with the city that they were from. Being a citizen... Um, meant being really very much a political person, that right. you were you were actively engaged in in the life of the city. This was considered really uh, central to your identity. Right. And the interesting thing about that is that if you were an individual, if you weren't actively right. participating in the life of the city, I know you going. were referred to as an idios or a plural idiotes, yeah. which... We, from which we get the word idiot. That's it means right. an individual in Greek. Yeah, right. Yeah. So individualism is idiotic. And, uh, <laughs> it, <laughs> in, in some forms, I guess. Uh, and one of the things that goes with that is, that, especially in Greece, it, it tended to be the kind of this notion on the kind of social and political harmony and order right. that kind of mimicked the cosmic order right, and right. found itself also uh, to be a good, you know, a good, to be a kind of a human being. Uh, fulfilling what one was as a political animal meant to be ordered similar, a microcosm of the whole. Yeah, all these things tie together, and yeah. people who kind of do the deep dive in this stuff see the connections, and it's just like, yeah. wow, that means this leads to that. It's great stuff. Other words, you know, that uh, derive that we derive from the, the, the word polis, uh, police, for example, keeping the, the order of the city, um, an important thing. But um, the, the idea. Uh, go, go ahead. 
I'd just like to actually point something else out, that if you go to Latin instead of Greek, yeah, the yeah. equivalent of the Latin polis is kivitas, uh, from which we get words like civilization. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. a whole bunch of other things, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we see parallels in different languages, uh, and those are things to, that are worth reflecting on. I think of what it implies to me anyway. You know, there are two ways you can think about it. You could say, well, one, one uh, civilization or worldview influenced another, or you could say that there's something real here that people arrived at independently you know, of each other uh, in their own ways through their own particular cultural stories. But, uh, and I'm, I'm inclined to, to think that both can be the case. But I think uh, getting back to this whole matter of, the, of, the, of politics then, uh, what constitutes politics? Uh, for the ancients, it was uh, the deliberative process of free citizens who uh, were engaged in you know, uh, debate and discussion concerning the common good, you know, the, the good of their, their city. That was politics. Uh, which leaves space then for other things. In other words, there's political matters, and then there's other stuff. And some of the other some of the other things are really important, like friendship. Now, are, are we are we uh, willing to say that you know friendship is necessarily political? Well, if the personal is political, I don't see why not. You know, we could call into question. Uh, our choices in friends, and sometimes you see that in certain situations. Like I've I've come across, um, you know, stories that talk about uh, do-gooder elementary school teachers who discourage best friends, from, you know, kids from forming you know friendships and making them best friendships, you know, like that kind of thing, because they're exclusive, you know, <laughs> you know, because if you're my be- if you're my best friend, that means that. Poor little Susie over there who doesn't have a friend is left out. So no one's allowed to have any friends. <laughs> I've actually I've, yeah. I've, read, I've read about stuff like yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, if because what this implies, then if the personal is political, then authorities who were in charge of the institutions of the city uh, really have no limit to when it comes to what they can you know, you know get involved in. I was I was uh, I remember reading a, an article a couple years ago. From a local, is a news article about a family that was part of the Catholic worker kind of movement. Dorothy Day stuff, yeah. Yes, and and one of the things that he talked about was a child who grew up in a household whose family brought in a lot of other other kids, and to almost create a commune is was was their sense of frustration and loss of being the children of the parents. Yeah, and and how they you know they kind of as they grew older they kind of saw what was going on, but they really had a a resentment they couldn't shake because because of that kind of breakdown in something that that otherwise did demand a certain exclusivity. Yeah. Anyway, I, I just no. I think that's a very very good point. I I think that there are idealistic people who fail to uh, give proper recognition to the legitimate claims that some people have on them that exclude other people. You right. know, like my child has a has a uh, a stronger claim on me than the kid down the street who's living in a box. Yeah. It, it might be worth noting where this idea of the personal is political comes from. Sure. Uh, it, it, it arises really with feminism. Yep. Yeah. And as the feminists were trying to change society, um, they thought, the way they figured it, the personal relationship of husband and wife, all of these kinds of things had political overtones because politics was the route through which you changed society. Right. right. Therefore, any, you know, for their cause, anything that was that involved gender relationships uh, was automatically political. Yeah, yeah. Now, the older understanding is that, you know, the relationship between a husband and wife is pre-political. In other words, it's something that exists by the nature of things. And this gets me to, you know, the point uh, that I, I really think is the place to begin, and uh, that is you have to have a sense of what is natural, and uh, when we talk about what's natural, uh, what is also normative. So in other words, uh, nature is not simply stuff happening, you know, 
matter in motion and you know meaningless collisions and stuff like that but there's some kind of meaningful uh, sort of uh, reality that we dwell in that it comes pre sort of it's already uploaded <laughs> that's right we, yeah. we enter into it and I, I know you know I've, I've been noticing as I've been reading uh, various otherwise pretty sound theologians recently even in the evangelical world um, uh, we have those yeah we, we do have them, <laughs> a few of them um, but one of the things I was noticing though is this increasing um, almost uh, Surrendering territory to saying that, oh they love to do that to, to, to say that well nature basically if we look at across history is basically different conceptions based on different under you know again yeah, historicism yeah. Yep. and then the other thing is that therefore we really can't delineate any anything that is really nature and so we need now their their thing is um, Christian the Christian narrative illumines and makes intelligible. Um, but but I think they, they've retreated too much. Yeah. And a lot of these people know better. I mean, some of them have worked heavily in the sciences, and they what else are they dealing with regularly? But but the thing is, is that I, I don't I don't buy that. No. I, no. I think we know very clearly that there are aspects that we gravitate towards, even as humans or you know, humans and the family and the like. That yes, there there may be a, a, a variety of forms that have been taken through history and fallen history, but nevertheless, there's an affinity there where you can delineate certain norms that have been have been generally constant. That when you do see it in the light of revelation and the ends for which which uh, human relationships um, flourish, you can see that natural law very very I think confidently. Yeah, we don't we don't find ourselves. You know, stepping into you know situations where we uh, have a culture that doesn't know what a father is, That's right. yeah. or or know what a mother is. You know, there are uh, names for these uh, persons, sisters, cousins. In fact, there are names that we don't have in English for relations that are natural. Uh, when we get to, you know two and three cousins out, stuff like that. Well, this is why there's I think so much emphasis and force on trying to basically implode these terms in these right. categories. That's right. Because of their affinity with the, with the natural. Yeah. So when we talk about the pre-political, we're talking about uh, relationships that are, you know, relationships that form whether or not, or can form whether or not, you know, there is a political institution that validates these things or not. Uh, you know, political, political institutions are valuable. You know, we are political animals, but we're not just political animals. And there are things that we bring to the political realm that uh, were not derived from the political realm. You see what I'm getting at. No. One, one place that it's worth looking here is, um, is the Genesis. Yeah. The pre-political, that pre can be, uh, can, can mean a couple of different things. But if you look at it simply chronologically, look at the book of Genesis and what was in place in Genesis prior to the development of human government. Yeah, there was a relationship between a man and a woman. What you see is family. Yeah. What you see is work. Mm -hmm. uh, what you see is, of course, relationship with God. Yep. Uh, what you see I is... Image of God. Image of God. Right. Right. Uh, what you see are a, a series of unalienable rights that, that you can trace to what God gave Adam and Eve in Genesis. Right. You see, you see science. You see, by implication, education. You see hierarchy. You yep. see hierarchy. Yep. Yep. All of these things are there before government and therefore government cannot claim legitimate authority over any of them right and uh, furthermore government uh, human governments can't uh, overcome these things they can't obliterate these things uh, in fact the under sort of the presupposition of you know this the sort of the category of the pre-political is that if you get rid of the pre-political you get rid of the political yeah. In other words, you've got to have certain things in place before politics can even be, you know, done. Yeah, yeah. 
And that's, I, I think, coupled that with, as we were, we were chatting a little bit prior to the show, is the kind of the transcendental vision that Christianity has, has affirmed right. um, is this, this notion that human beings are also not the highest thing of value. And because of that, therefore, humans being political animals is not the highest thing about them. There's a right. higher limit there. Right. And so, so, of course, their determination by that to which they owe all of their existence, first and foremost, they're limited on that end. In other words, we are always dependent on the Creator for what we are and the form in which we enact. Always. You can't eradicate that. That's right. what it means to be a creature that is, is finite. And then also that there are ordained ends that are also pre-political. Yes. They are not established by, they may be supported by, yeah. but they are not established by the political. Yeah. So, uh, to make the personal political, I think, is to kind of engage in a kind of a Sisyphus-like, you know, uh, project. Reality is, uh, you know, it's inclined against the project. They cannot win. Yeah. Now, they're willing to go transhuman on us. Yeah. They're willing to actually uh, harm and defile and maim human bodies yeah. to get what they want. Yeah. But even then, it can't work. Yeah. There's so much energy, uh, money, uh, labor uh, in get, you know, involved in this whole transhumanist project that sort of obliterate natural distinctions and yeah. create this kind of crazy self-actualized world or world in which people can self-actualize into anything they want to become. Yeah. Well, act actually, I, I'm not sure transhumanism is quite the right word for this, but what strikes me here is where you started off on your definition of politics, uh, the, a cooperative system right. of making decision-making for, decision for society. We are largely replacing politics in that sense with technocracy. That's that's true. And there is um, really less and less room for political processes as classically understood because they're being replaced by technocrats, which ultimately is the high road to totalitarianism, one of them. But that, you know... When you talk about losing the pre-political means you lose the political. It's, if you understand politics that way, it, it just follows like night and day. Right, right. Well, it, and, and this brings us to, you know, I think uh, a discussion of the nature of limited government. Is limited government a thing of the past? Um, if we have technocracy that we're dealing with, which has asked, you know, which aspires to a kind of totalism, defining us all the way down, and uh, kind of almost in a brave new world kind of way, uh, and uh, no limits, no recognized limits on the political, you know, what is, um, you know, le a legitimate subject for political discussion. Um, then, uh, you know, the whole notion that government is limited, which is, I think, the... Uh, you know, the understanding that we've inherited as Americans uh, of our democracy. You know, it, it seems to me that that's under threat in, in ways that are, um, you know, existential in the, in the, in the sense that the, the very ground under which that kind of, you know, approach to politics is no longer possible. Yeah, I, I, I would say that's absolutely the case because, um, I mean, the, the nature of totalitarianism is their right. total control of all of life. Right. And these kinds of things are effectively totalitarian projects. Once you eliminate a sphere that the, any, once you eliminate spheres in which the government is not allowed to operate, in other words, once you right. allow the government to take over pretty much all the different spheres, you've got totalitarianism almost by definition. So now we're into Kuyperian sphere sovereignty. Right. Maybe you can spend a little time helping folks understand what that is, Glenn. Yeah, Kuyper, um, Abraham Kuyper, was a theologian, a politician, and a journalist. <laughs> all of the above. Yeah, and he did it all like, you know, like in the normal time span that all of us have. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, and Kuyper argued for an idea that, that got termed sphere sovereignty. The idea here is that uh, God has ordained in the world 
different spheres, each of which is supposed to operate autonomously, um, government being one of them, but only one of them. So you have you have uh, religion, um, you have the family, you have uh, industry, you have labor, you have education, you have science, you have a whole series of these kinds of things. Um, and fundamentally, each of them is supposed to govern its own affairs. Government is one of those, but it doesn't really have legitimate authority in anything other than its own sphere. And, it, and that sphere is more or less helping to adjudicate the boundaries of the others. I would, yeah, to a large extent it's that, but also defense and, and things right. of that sort. Right. And the problem comes, what happens when a sphere stops operating well? Right, right. And they, we, that's usually referred to as what happens when a sphere collapses. Right. Um, think of the, uh, the financial crisis. Yep. You know, the, the uh, bubbles in the economy where uh, things blow up and the, and the economy collapses because big business is not behaving well. You know, yeah. things like that. So what, what happens when a sphere collapses? Well, what has to happen is another sphere has to step in to allow time for that sphere to rebuild itself so it can start operating correctly. Most often what that means is the government is going to step in and do it, but once the government does that, it doesn't relinquish power lightly. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's a lot like Sauron. <laughs> he does not share power. <laughs> that's right, right, right. Now, I think it'd be worthwhile maybe distinguishing sphere sovereignty from subsidiarity. You know, that's a, a Catholic approach. You know, what I've, I, and I've, I, as I've talked to, uh, you know, Reformed and uh, Catholic thinkers on this matter, you know, with, with subsidiarity, you have kind of a, a, a kind of a vertical orientation. Right. The, the basic idea in subsidiarity is that problems are best solved in as local a level as possible. Right, right. Um, the idea being that the more people, and this, this actually fits in very nicely with a lot of reform thought as well, the more people you involve in something unnecessarily, the worse your result is going to be, and the more injustice, frankly, is introduced. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we just had a lot of guys introduce a lot of food to the table. Yeah, yeah. So we've, we've had some food delivered, and uh, everybody's happy, smiling, chewing. Anyway, so back to subsidiarity versus uh, uh, sphere sovereignty. Now, are these mutually sort of uh, incompatible? Uh, They're not the same thing, but I think that they work together pretty nicely. Yeah, yeah. Um, Catholic social thought operates in slightly different terms than Kuyperianism does. Sure. Yeah. It is worth noting, though, that there's a guy, a theologian, I don't know if he's still there, but he used to be at Calvin. Um, I'm blanking out on his name at the moment. Wrote a book called The Good of Affluence. And he, um, he argued for something that he called moral proximity. Okay, yeah. so this is Calvin. This is at Calvin College. He's reformed. He's reformed, and he's for prosperity. Right. Probably it's, not there anymore. It's called the good of affluence. Now, but but, but you, you get my point. Yeah. He's probably not there yeah. anymore. <laughs> right. So, but but his, his argument was that um, the idea of moral proximity is that you have greater responsibilities to the people you are morally proximate to. Right. So, for example, I have great responsibilities to my wife, to my kids. Yep. I have serious responsibilities to my church and my community. I have responsibilities to ministries I have direct connections with in Sierra Leone and Peru. I have much less responsibilities to ministries I don't have direct connections to. Right, right. So this is why, you know, it isn't incumbent on me to give away all my money to feed children in a place that I've really no contact with. Right, right. Even though they have, in a sense, a claim on me there are people who have greater claims, and therefore I need to take care of those first. Yeah. That is the flip side of subsidiarity. Okay. Yeah. That's the reformed, that, that is subsidiarity in a reformed context, talking about what our personal responsibilities look like. So, uh, if, if, if I'm getting this correct, if I'm sort of interpreting the, the description of subsidiarity and, and moral proximity uh, right. correctly, the agency with regard to subsidiarity is more in the lines with institutions 
And when we're talking about moral proximity, we're talking more along the lines of moral agents. Yeah. Um, subsidiarity can apply to individuals as well. As an individual, if my kids have a problem or my wife has a problem, I should do my best to handle that. Right. If it's beyond my capability, then maybe there's an, th another local institution that could step in and help. Right, right. So it can involve individuals, but it does extend into an institutional area. Moral proximity can do the same thing. So I talked about my responsibilities. My church has responsibilities to a community in Barranca, Peru, because we have <coughs> strong relationships there. Right. So it can, that can also be an institutional issue as well. Really, the, the key here is, in one case, who is responsible for fixing the problem? And in the other case, who am I responsible to? So with... Like I said, they're, they're opposite sure. sides of the same coin, basically. So we're when we're, when we're you know, referring to pre-political pre institutions, families, et cetera, yeah. there's, a, there's an understanding that, um, that when these things are working well, uh, they're taking care of a number of their needs uh, on their own. Right. So let, let's, let's take a simple example. These are old numbers. Um, I don't know what the current stats are. But some time ago, I was reading that if you give a dollar to charity, 70% of it, on the average, goes to the person who's in need, that the charity is, is dedicated toward. When government spends money on charitable activities, and I don't know whether you can really use charity with respect to government. Sure. But when government does that, 30 cents goes to the recipient. Yeah, yeah. 70 cents of it is eaten up by government bureaucracy. Now, here's the question. What is a more effective way of getting aid to the poor? Right. You know, and that's subsidiarity. It is, this is an outgrowth of the ideas of subsidiarity. This is what you would expect. Right. So we see uh, other institutions sort of fill in the gap when, say, when we're talking about pre-political institutions and we, they, there's, a, there's a failure on, on, you know, those institutions, on the part of those institutions to do the things that they should be doing for themselves. And then we see these other things fill in the gap. Historically, we're actually working in, I would say the, the direction really goes the other way. Historically, the government began usurping responsibilities that had been picked up by the local community. Once the government began doing that, community institutions, private charity, and things like that went on the decline. So what we're talking about now are what are sometimes referred to as mediating institutions. Right. Right. I would refer to it as government usurpation of responsibilities that are not properly theirs. Right, right. Well, that's the, that's, the, yeah. that's, the, that's the thing, that's the problem. But what they're supplanting is what you were referring to before, these local institutions, yeah. which may be not, maybe sort of voluntary associations. Well, right. we talked about guilds, for example. Last, yeah, last voluntary week. associations, church uh, charitable giving, um, neighbors helping neighbors. Sure. Yeah, when, when, pe when people think that, oh, there's you know, some agency that's going to take care of so-and-so, I don't need to do anything, then there's a kind of passivity that sets in, and people just assume, more or less, that the people that they should be taking care of are going to be taken care of. The assumption is that federal programs work more effectively than local programs. I think that's true. I think a lot of people think that, right. but that's not and, the case. And so the net result, though, with a federal program is you get a one-size-fits-none policy. Right. Right. Well, this is something that would be worth thinking a little bit about, and that is, why are we such saps for this sort of thing? In other words, uh, I think that most people, if you ask them uh, about government programs, you know, they'll say, well, yeah, I mean, they don't really work all that well. But then they will call into question anybody who calls them into question. Well, that, yeah, I mean, it's a long long history to why, um, but I think what happens increasingly as we, we experience it is that government basically is a substitute now for so many of those other pre-political places um, to the point that you almost by default expect it to jump in and, and take care of everything. Right. I mean, and when it doesn't... Um, you you almost placed in a city. I mean, let's let's think of what's going on. Off. Let's think of last summer. 
um, when you have cities burning for political right, reasons. Sure. sure. And people are expecting government to come in at this point, and government's actually taking a side. That's right. right. Now we're for, we're for we're for, we are for burning the city <laughs> yeah, down. Yeah, that's so, right. So we're, yeah. we're we're all about that. Or or acting like it doesn't exist. I mean, but yeah. but, but but here you have, I mean, a, a classic situation in which people are st- sitting there waiting for someone to come in and do something. And, it, and I think in that area, they they probably should expect as part of a sit being a citizen that, that that's you know that part of what you pay for with your right. taxes and stuff is to protect someone to come in and protect you right. from something that could could do you harm um, which is precisely one of the core functions of government yeah which right. is precisely what they gave up right. yes right yes and so and so what it does is that they chose all those those vulnerability areas but i think that the the psychological impact of that is how do I now have to readjust so that I accept this about the government in such a way that I'm not going to expect this, I have to be the one who, who has to somehow conform to this new set of arrangements. So it, there is, by creating this dependency, right, and then failing to come in where you would expect it, um, the dependency is already created, and so now you have, you, you have conformity. Right. And I think this is what, I mean, this is my sense, just intuitively of, of why people have become so passive. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, then... Except, keep in mind that gun sales have been going through the roof. Right. Yeah. So people are saying, all right, I need to take care yeah. of this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, now that's, that's one thing yeah. that people do. And I do think that there are other things that people do, but this whole matter of recovering moral agency... And, and just before it slips my mind, I, I think, you know, classically, Christians in particular have been institution builders. Right. And we are seeing the, I mean, this has been going on a long time. We talked about last week, Dewey and the indoctrination system of right. education, for example, in the U.S. Right. Um, it, it, and how Christians have kind of moved independently to maybe homeschooling, but really have been many steps behind what they classically did. I mean, we did a show sometime back, Len did, on Ireland and the way in which All right. institutions. But here's another place where you become dependent, a society becomes dependent, trusting the government to basically reaffirm parents and their educating children and their right. values. Right. Now you have actually school boards telling parents that they're acting like a bunch of, of, of babies that they're not going to listen to. Right, right. And, and, yeah, I remember being a part of the Parents' Rights Initiative in Massachusetts yeah, yeah. back in the day, Brian Kamaker and Mass Resistance and all of that. And uh, I didn't have any illusions about uh, you know, the public school uh, authorities. I, I pretty much knew that they were, uh, you know, their aspirations were just way out of line and that, and that they didn't have much regard for parental authority at all. Yeah. And uh, it was all, you know, reinforced <laughs> yeah, for, yeah. for me in, 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 you know, public hearings where I would sit and listen to these public school officials basically, uh, you know, uh, display their contempt for parents. Yeah. But uh, I don't think that parents really get that. I don't think that yeah. most parents really uh, have a sense for how low they are in the estimation of most public school teachers and officials. And how, and how those school teachers, not necessarily the teachers themselves, though increasingly so, but definitely the higher up the chain you go, right. how much they believe those children really belong to them in the state and right. not to the parents. That's right. Well, they, or they think of themselves as liberators. That's right. You know, the, uh, delivering these children from the benighted attitudes of their parents. parents right. Yeah. So, uh, interestingly enough, there's a backlash, yeah. not surprisingly. I saw someone who's arguing that they should put ca- cameras in classrooms yeah, so yeah. the parents can monitor what their kids are, <laughs> right. are learning. Yeah, yeah. Largely in reaction to what happened during COVID where parents were not permitted to watch what their right, kids were right. doing. Yeah, <laughs> just think about that. You know, you, you know, I'm not allowed to see what my child is being taught and then my child is supposed to come to me for help on yeah. his homework. <laughs> and, and I mean, and I think that I think more. I think more stunning. And I guess I mean, we, we we kind of hit hit on this all the time. But we've all been enough in institutions of higher ed 
Um, and we know these, we've been around these theories and the people who promote them and the people who came up with them for that matter. Right. And you, when you start to realize how weak need they actually are and how grounded on nothing and that the arrogance that they have that they know better than people right. just from their, their common experience of being a human creature living in the world, it's just unbelievable. Right, right. It, I mean, it's, it's stunning the way we, we submit, in a sense, that God-given pre-political um, gift endowment we have to kind of guide and direct our children that is far more incredible than the theoretical dispositions of, of people coming up with this stuff in, in the laboratory. So let's, let's go back to... And by to, the way, a lot of that stuff started with Rousseau. Yeah. So let's, oh, yeah. Go, let's go back to, to, the, uh, to the nature of the pre-political and how it's understood and justified. So, you know, if you read someone like Aristotle, you know, you, you know you're not uh, reading a, a Christian... Uh, nevertheless, uh, there was a sense in which Aristotle, uh, you know, based his thinking upon a, a uh, natural order which was immutable. It was just simply the way things are. And that was the pre-political. So he had an understanding of, of, of the natural order as being an eternal, you know, thing. You know, there was, there was a sense in which in Aristotelian thinking it just, it's, it's, you know, always just been this way, you know, and then you know, you've got forms and types that are, you know, just rock solid and, and don't change. And it uh, is grounded, and, and though he didn't have the kind of Christian view of transcendence, there was still, he was hinting at a, a orderer, if you will, and right. something, something that, that um, gave depth to all of that pre- but but it, it was yeah. a it was a it was an unconscious creator. That's right. Yes. You know? Yeah. And, and I guess what I'm getting at is that I do think that the Christian contribution to the understanding of the pre-political is important. I'd like to think a little bit about that. But I also think that the Christian understanding introduces something to the understanding of the pre-political, which in the wrong hands becomes something entirely hostile to pre-political. So let's think a little bit about that. So if we have, a, we, we've talked about this in many episodes of the show, if we have a uh, creation and we have, you know, uh, a given order of things and forms and types and kinds and so forth, as you've talked about, Tom, yeah. and a transcendent creator who has gifted the, these things to be as they are, gifted us with these things so that they are what they are, um, we have a stable basis, uh, a, a, a strong rationale for the pre-political. Yeah. You know, we talked about it a little bit with, you know, creation and Genesis and so forth. Now I'm talking about it more sort of theologically. But things have altered, and we've talked about this many yeah. times, but maybe, maybe you could fill out a little bit, Tom, uh, what is the... Christian contribution to the pre-political and the understanding of the pre-political that made uh, Christian politics what it was. Um, in terms of kind of, in terms of kind of adding to that generic understanding that Aristotle. Yeah, I, I guess and, adding to yeah. that, or maybe uh, something brand new. Or, well, one, I think one, once the Christian tr vision of transcendence comes in, and which interestingly comes with their focus on Christology. Um, it wasn't just Christians focusing on what the Bible talked about, um, creation itself, but it was actually the understanding of creation in light of Logos, the eternal right, Logos, right. Um, which therefore, you know, as John's gospel said, you know, is, is kind of illumines all things, but is at the heart of all of creation. So what, what you have introduced there is Logos that was hinted around with the Stoics and hinted around with the different um, natural law theories and, and, and theories of forms. And then even with Plato, you had some notion of a summum bonum, an ultimate good, which is the, the fundamental reality that gives meaning and depth to all of the, you know, the, the creaturely forms, if you will. Christianity comes in and basically um, weaves this whole picture together, but grounded in, um, grounded in, in, a, in a vision that alters all of that in fundamental ways. Um, first of all, it is no longer merely um, an eternal, immutable um, uh, uh, natural order, but it is contingent and it is directing itself towards a higher end, a transcendental end. So whereas for, for Aristotle, you have, a, say, a human creature, well, it has a natural form 
and it is teleological. It um, what a thing is is both what it is in potential, but really what it is once it has reached. Doesn't in other words, it doesn't have a future in God. That's right. Its, it's yeah. future is not in God, and it's not the, the beautific vision, if you will. Right. Right. Um, and so you don't have that. Um, you don't have radiating through the whole understanding of reality prior to Christianity um, the glory of God and God's presence to all things as both the creator and sustainer of everything, but also the chief end. Right. And so if, if you're talking here, you saw a, a radical limit also brought into the picture where creation and order and even the cosmos wasn't everything. Mm -hmm. There was a huge limit. In a sense, you could think of it just, I'm using an analogy here, of, of Genesis where you have your six days and then you have a Sabbath rest. It places a limit on and all the rest there. So you, you have the creaturely is not everything. And the creaturely is ordered towards the transcendent God in Christ right. um, in a way that that impacts and affects everything else. And so what do you get when you get to to um, the political, for example. Well, you have a, you have um, secular, for example, is not understood as, um, as a space in which the political has its own, I mean, this is where he, this is where I think classically Christianity would maybe bump up a little bit against Kuiper. I, I don't think this is what uh, Kuiper meant, but there, Secular, for example, was understood as a period of time, not a space. Right, right. So there is, it, it's a time between Christ's coming and, and Christ's return. Right. And so that governs the political in the, in the classic Christian introduction of things. In other words, there are certain limits to what the political should uh, endeavor to do. That's right. It, there's a limit to what it does, and then, then there's an, almost an exposure of the political as itself creaturely, temporal, and therefore a servant rather right. than a master. Right. Um, and I think this is, this is the part I think that, that um, is, it, on the other hand, there is almost a legitimization of politics. I think this is maybe where you can go with it. What, how did it get dangerous? Yeah. To where if you take the political and you hold that it has a legitimate place within, within you know, final and ultimate things, Therefore, you endow it in ways that it could become autonomous and it could actually take off. And then it could be wed to a, a higher purpose, um, almost of perfecting the creation as part of the perfecting process of God's kingdom. And if that gets secularized, if you will, then what you do is you've introduced the political as capable of reaching perfection through its own resources and its own power and almost forcing people into a perfect state. I mean, this is what Rousseau Rousseau was very up to the perfectibility, right? Of of um, and well, this wouldn't have come without Christianity in some sense talking about the way in which we're being perfected. Right. Right. Well, we have you know examples in the Radical Reformation. Yeah. Of people who uh, you know amenitized the eschaton, as they say. You know, as yeah. uh, Vogelin said. Uh, and what became of them, uh, generally speaking, was really bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and, but now we've removed the transcendent uh, entirely from the scene, yeah. uh, and now it's, it's entirely our own sort of uh, project to create, I don't know, self, you know, well, apotheosis, to, to divinize ourselves, you know, yeah. to, be, to be like gods. That's right, and, and there, but there's this notion, I think, that still comes back. I mean, you think of, you hear it in the term progress in, in Enlightenment countries, yeah. but you hear it in the, in the kind of Hegelian... We'll talk more about this in another episode, the Hegelian Marxist line, is that you can arrange without the kingdom of God, right, being um, in-breaking in Christ's return. You can somehow through your own muscle, if you will, and, 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 and through your own resources, um, bring about a, a perfect political state of affairs or one that gets very close. I mean, think of any system that thinks you can tear it down Tear it to the ground and build it in a just way. I mean, any any yep. of those notions. But there is a seed here of iconoclasm. I think you said there's something Christianity brings in that if it gets ripped from the Christian vision, right. becomes a very dangerous thing. One would be that iconoclasm. Yeah, I think that um, the more uh, profoundly true something is, the more profoundly, I guess, uh, 
you know, uh, evil it can be or uh, more sort of damage it can, it can cause. You know, you think about, I think this illustration works for me. You know, uh, when we think about nuclear power, uh, it's something that can light a city or, or uh, you know, bring it, uh, burn it to the ground. You know, you've got the power uh, being directed in different directions. Now, I'd like to spend the last part of the show just thinking a little bit about how do we, you know, sort of recover the pre-political. Um, how do we go about that? Um, I have some preliminary thoughts. Uh, they're not terribly impressive proposals, <laughs> but uh, I guess maybe uh, impressive proposals are the, I guess the, I don't know the. The uh, the expertise of the totalitarians. <laughs> so, may, so maybe there's always a kind of modesty to a genuinely good course of action. You know, it's worth noting that in Europe, the term liberal and conservative mean things very different than they do here. Right, yeah. right. A European liberal is basically, historically, the idea is that they really liked the ideas of the French Revolution. Maybe not so much your guillotine, but right. a lot of the other ideas. They had me up to the guillotine. And the, the, the conservatives... The guillotine just did it in for me. Yeah, the conservatives in Europe were conservatives because they said that human society is way too complicated right. it to be reduced to any kind of ideology or philosophical concept or anything like that. That was, that was to, to the conservative, that was the core problem of the French Revolution. Tradition was there for a reason. It worked. Yeah, so Edmund Burke would be an example of a... Edmund Burke, exactly, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So, grand proposals for sweeping change right. are the project of the liberal who thinks yeah. that he's smarter than society. Right. Yeah. So, being modest, <laughs> being humble, what do we do? How do we bring back uh, the respect that we ought to have for... Now, in other words, because it's, these things are natural, these things are pre-political, we don't have to make them. They just are. Yeah. But how do we, how do we uh, vindicate them, uh, protect them, that kind of stuff? And clarify them. I think that's a, that's a, a big thing because, I mean, I, I know there are wonderful Christian communities for whom the clarification is all there. I think, however, spread across the U.S. and maybe globally, it, it's a very different picture. Um, and, I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot of layers to this. I mean, I mean, if you're talking grand kind of work, um, one is we have to recapture the, the biblical vision of transcendence and the way that all these things are to be understood in that light. Um, but living that, I think, is the real thing. And, I mean, I think the Reformation call to the glory, you know, the glory of God in all things, I don't think that's just a pious add-on. I think it is an orientation picture that the, the, they were able to order and understand all of these pre-political things in the right light, and because of that, it's shown as they aimed to order them that way. Um, and I, I think we have to recapture... Um, the true nature of transcendence, the, the proper understanding of creation, nature, history, um, kinds and, and, and natures, and their, their, their first purposes, Genesis, and the fall and its impact, and then what true eschatology looks like when these are renewed and oriented towards um, um, Christ and, the, and our, our ultimate joy in God. Um, and then, then I think that, that we have to retrieve a lot of the classic Christian vision of natural law, of, of um, a, pop, a classical vision of, of engaging being in, in reality and ethics. Um, so that's the big, big thing. Um, the small scale is, is, is kind of, it's something where it's going to come, in my opinion, studying theology, it's going to come through proper formation. It's not going to come through a formulation. Right, okay. Um, and that's, I mean, that's, it's, it's almost similar to, to virtue and character formation. So, so play that out a little bit. When you, so uh, formation versus formulation. When you say formulation, are you talking about like programs? Well, fo formulation is kind of what, um, it, it's kind of like taking uh, the idea of Christian transcendent and try to apply it as a technique 
to all uh, to these fears yes, of life. Gotcha, gotcha. Whereas recovering the classic vision of ordering our loves the right way towards God and all things relative to God, and then then spelling out rigorously what Scripture teaches, what the church has wrestled with in terms of family, the you know the the, the core and best pattern of family life. Um, both as as a, a sign of God's transcendent presence in the world, but also as for the flourishing of generations. Um, I mean, I, I think. Let me back up a different way. I don't want to, because I'm thinking on the cuff here. Um, I, I think one of the things, for example, let's say we're, we're good, committed, scripture-centered folks, right? And we're following what the Bible teaches, and we're trying to put it into practice. We're already ahead of the game there. Um, but the question is, Scripture itself has in it an understanding that tells us how to understand these things. Um, so it's not just a matter of reading the Bible passage and then trying to figure out how it applies to your life. It's actually a whole orientation. Right. Uh, it's a whole transcendental vision that must um, be retrieved if we're going to actually begin to see these particulars the right way. I mean, I don't think there's a shortcut to it. Well, I, I agree. The, yeah. I think the challenge, as you know, is that at the local church level, there's yeah. almost nobody who gets it. Yeah, yeah. Including the pastor. In fact, sometimes the pastor will be the last guy to get, to get it. it. And well, be the most resistant. Yeah. Well, I think that this is where, you know, in practical terms, we need to be thinking about forming what I would describe as intentional communities. Okay. Yeah. Um, because, first of all, values, we talked about value formation. Values yeah. are not formed in a vacuum. They're only formed in community. Yeah. 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 So what I would suggest is we need to team up with like-minded people across churches, across denominations, across anything, and find ways of mutually encouraging and supporting each other support being critically important right now in a world that's becoming increasingly hostile to the faith. People are going to lose jobs if they stay faithful. Right. People are going to be brought to court if they're faithful. People yeah. will be bankrupted. Yeah. We need these kinds of intentional communities to gather around these people who already have established relations with each other right. uh, in order to provide what's necessary there. You know, the theoretical foundation is critical. There's no question about that. Mm -hmm. But to give it legs, you really need that kind of a, a so here's formal a, or informal organization. Yeah, so here's the question. Is is uh, what we're describing here something that uh, can actually be uh, brought into being sort of in the, in the world, uh, the evangelical world as we know it now? In other words, uh, so many of the... So many of the things that, as far as I can see, to be the measures of success don't have anything to do with what we're talking about. And so, consequently, churches, pastors, seminaries, and so forth, are really giving short shrift yeah. to this stuff yeah. and are focused a whole lot more on getting butts in pews and making sure people feel warm and Accepted and playing and to like the that. symbol, the, the contemporary symbolism. I mean, I see it all right. the time in this, right. the seminary settings. It's all, let's make sure we've used all the buzzwords that don't prevent us from getting burnt down, basically. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I mean, Glenn's probably got his own take on it, but I think it's, I don't think it's just something that, you think of it a different way. I don't know that I'm confident enough to say that the evangelical world will be very warm to this kind of thing on large scale, but I do think that there are many Christians within that world that understand that if something like this doesn't happen, there's really going to be nowhere for them to go. Yeah, I, I, what I'm witnessing is that uh, there are sort of informal uh, and semi-formal networks that are growing yeah. that uh, are drawing people from a wide range of locations and even denominations and they're, they're finding uh, the kind of thing that we're talking about here. Not, not fully uh, realized but uh, there's, there's something that they, they see that their own sort of church ex, you know, sort of experience is, is, is left unaddressed uh, it's becoming more and more uh, obvious to them that 
this stuff that's being unaddressed is really, really important, and we're getting our, you know, we're getting killed in those very things, those very areas, and um, our evangelical leadership, generally speaking, with some important exceptions, just are not to be found. Uh, or maybe even playing for the other team. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, getting it. I know. I think that you know, social media has been uh, kind of a blessing and a curse in this this mm-hmm. whole thing. Blessing insofar as you know, there are a lot of people who are able to find the kind of help and insight. Hopefully, our our little show does its part, you know, in this this whole matter uh, by just helping people know that you know. The ways that people think today, not just secular people, but even people in the church, are really anomaly, an anomaly, you know, a series of anomalies to, to the way people in the past uh, thought. And um, there have been some important things that we've lost uh, when we forgot those old ways of thinking and, and, uh, and doing things. Well, and I think on that level of intentional community, I mean, I think that's very much along the lines of how any of the, the kind of significant contributions of Christianity to to social change in a positive way have happened. I mean, you think of the abolitionist movement. You think of you think of the way in which people got around, threw these ideas together out in community, and became intentional about all the, ran, the areas of their lives in which they were going to be committed to that kind of thing. But then you also is the creation of a network of support, which I think is is a given. If people are going to risk for the gospel, then 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 that becomes a burden on everyone concerned about the gospel. Um, and so I, I know uh, Robert George uh, uh, has a community with Neal Ferguson and others in the academic world that anyone who ends up getting getting thrown out, for example, for standing up for, for alternative academic convictions, um, they've already got a, a growing number, an organization that, that comes... That's great. Um, in terms of legal help and academic support, writing letters to presidents, institutions. Um, and these people are putting legs on their yeah. convictions. Well, Robert P. George, you know, is a great guy. And uh, you say, you know, a professor of jurisprudence at Princeton. And, uh, yeah. And uh, was really, uh, you know, uh, a tremendous uh, source of inspiration to lots of you know, socially conservative intellectuals in the academy, but especially in the Ivy League. And uh, that's great. I mean, it's good to have, you know, kind of a war chest and a bunch of guys who are willing to go to bat for people, and and we need that. I guess, though, you know, getting back to kind of the the lives that we lead uh, and, you know, sort of where we find ourselves, what what I'm getting at when I talk about the pre-political is your family, your neighborhood, your church, your friendship network, those, those uh, are really, when you think about it, the, some of the most important, uh, if not the most important relationships that you have. Yeah. You know, the political uh, is very powerful and it can really mess up your life. <laughs> and it wants to actually get into all of those. Yeah, it wants divide. to get into all that stuff. That, well, it, yeah, <laughs> think, think about this for a moment. The family, historically understood, performed an important social function, reproduction, and acculturation of children so that they could not be barbarians but become functioning members of society. That was the reason anthropologically why marriage is given a privileged place in every society. Once you redefine marriage as who any two people who decide they want to declare themselves married yeah, or at two inanimate objects or yeah. vegetables or something it's like beyond, that. Right. It's beyond two now, right. but anyway. Well, yep, yeah, right. whatever. <laughs> once you do that, once you remove the reproductive function from family, once you take that out of definition, what social function does marriage perform? Essentially companionship. It's, that's not much of a social function. It no, does not, not contribute in any way to society as a whole. Right. So government, by redefining family, has eliminated a critical social function, just taking it completely out of the equation. Then we can... So family suddenly 
is now understood in America to be something totally different from what it used to be. So when you talk about starting with your family, guess what? The government's defined that for you. Yeah. Well, I think that's kind of what, we, I, what I mean. To you, and, and we can keep going. I mean, right. you know, look at the restrictions on worship right. uh, mm-hmm. during COVID. Look at, um, uh, th- there's just been a study that's come out that indicates that American men especially, but women as well, have relatively few friendships, if any. Yeah, right, yeah. right. You know, so all of these pre-political institutions have been systematically gutted. So my, my thought is, is that we need to go on the offensive and carve out territory and take things back. Let folks who have stepped into things that they should not have stepped into know that they're not welcome and tell them to get out. Yeah. That kind of edge is what we need. Anyway, we've come to the end of the, the show. We've got... Uh, right when it was getting said. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we're going to do another show, so maybe some of that fire can kind of carry over. I've been a little bit kind of... kind of, Well, kind of washed out because I just got off a plane. <laughs> but anyway, I'm a little weary... But uh, I'm reviving. I'm reviving. I'll get something with caffeine. Well, anything else you guys want to say before we wrap it up? I think I'm good. Yep, good. I pretty much covered it here or in Slaying Leviathan. (laughs) That's right. So go out and buy Slaying Leviathan and uh, tune in next time to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate your support. Bye-bye. Bye now.